here I'd like to do by way of intro, we're gonna, my goal tonight, or during our last session here, is to kind of keep you engaged and connected, but also to, to just build, build a, a continued foundation of talking about biblical counseling. And so by way of introduction, everybody show of hands, um, as we think about what makes biblical counseling biblical, everybody show of hands, how many of you, um, how many of you have kids, if you have kids, you just raise your hands up high if you have kids. Okay, so we have a great number of people that have kids. Um, you can put your hands on. How many of you um, talk to people at work every day, or maybe when you work, talk to people during your workout? Really? So a lot of people don't talk to anybody at work? <laughs> uh, um, okay, uh, how about, how many of you, um, how many of you talk to yourself in the morning as you're getting ready to go about your day? Be honest, you talk to yourself. Okay, last question, how many of you, I'm going to go here, how many of you talk every day? Raise your hands. Talk every day, okay? Okay, this front row here, alright. The reason I took, I took a picture there because sometimes being a worship pastor, people say that, that churches don't show a lot of expression. So I just took a picture of all these hands up in there and it was like, perfect. So I'll post that later on Facebook. No, but by way of introduction, so my name is Mike, I'm the worship pastor, and I, I do have kids and I, I do talk to people every day and I, um, I even talk to myself every day, quite honestly. And I believe if you fell into any one of those three categories, or even add a fourth category and say that you, you wake up every morning, which you do because you're here now, then you are a counselor. You qualify to be here tonight to talk about what it looks like to be a counselor. Because the reality is, we are all counselors. And so, why is this topic necessary? As we think about what makes biblical counseling biblical, we can... We could give an answer in, in one word and call it a night. What makes biblical counseling biblical? Well, duh, it's biblical. But what I'd like to do is just to kind of begin to set a foundation of, of how God's word provides a foundation for our, our thinking, our processing of information, and even the way that we would respond and engage in conversations every day, whether it be to the people that we work with, the people that we love, even ourselves. We counsel every day. And so with that as our premise, let me start our time by reading from God's Word. And we think, think about focusing our, our minds on, on the truth. Focusing our minds on the greatness of God. I'm going to read Psalm 33 and listen as I read it. It says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. 
He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight, and we have already looked at your word and considered your greatness in our midst. And so we pray even now for the, the next few moments that we spend together. Just pray that our, our minds would be open, our ears would hear what you would have us to learn together. Lord, help me to be clear in what I speak, to speak slowly and with great clarity your truth, your word, because that word endures forever. As we commit our time now to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't put your Bibles away. We're going to open them a little bit further here. So what makes biblical counseling biblical? Why a topic like this over a weekend? We have six teaching times, five or six. Why would we talk a whole session on the, the importance of biblical counseling? I'd like to suggest three reasons. One of them, as we just alluded to, we are all called to counsel. Now maybe you came tonight or you saw invitation and thought, oh, I'm interested to find out what that's about, but I'm not a counselor. I'm not someone who is qualified or has the knowledge ability to share God's word with someone else and help them how to grow in their walk with Christ. I would like to differ with you and, and encourage you to look with me at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. And again, I'm going to make a broad assumption here that if you are here tonight, my hope and prayer and thought is that you know Christ, you desire to follow the Lord in your walk, and desire to, to bring others to follow him as well. So as we look at Galatians 6.2, thinking about the, the aspect of being called to counsel, all of us being called to counsel together, consider with me Galatians 6.2. You probably know it, but hopefully it'll take on a new meaning to think about offering encouragement to those around you. It says, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here we go. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So God has called each of us to bear the burdens of one another, to come alongside those who are, in this text, caught in a transgression. Come alongside those who are hurting, those who find themselves in a trial, a tough circumstance or challenge. If I ask the question of, raise your hand if you know someone going through a hard time right now, you all could raise your hand. You've all known someone, loved someone, even yourself, gone through times of hardship, trial, even sinfulness. And so it's in those times that we need to be not only counseling ourselves, but also offering words of encouragement to others. So why is this topic needed? One, we are all called to counsel. Number two, the second reason that this topic I believe is needed is that not all counseling that proposes to be biblical truly is. I remember it was probably six, six years ago, maybe a little longer than that, it was the first time that I attended a, a biblical counseling conference in faith, and I remember Pastor Ben was there, we might have been the second year, and we left there just hearing about the excitement of biblical counseling, and we were ready to hang a shingle and open for business. Come on, come on, come on, we want to share the word with you. What we found quickly is that there are so many around, our culture included, that puts labels on things, not really meaning what it is intended to do. And so I would suggest that as we think about what is really biblical, that we look at what the distinctions are that make something biblical. That's why I believe it's important over the weekend, we're going to be hearing again and again definitions and descriptions. And so as we talk about counseling, as we talk about biblical counseling, it's very important for us to define our terms. As you think about evaluating or discerning something that is true, something that is biblical, even as it relates to counseling, we must discern that with what, what is really meant. What, what does that mean to be biblical? We'll look at what that means in just a moment. And number three, the reason that I believe this topic is needed is that the Word of God is under attack. The Word of God is under attack like never before. The Bible, historically, is the most despised, denied, disputed, dissected, even debated book in all of history. It's been under attack for centuries. Everything you could imagine has been thrown at God's Word. And yet, the Bible is the most read, the most published, the most translated book in the world. And most importantly, it's still changing the lives of those who apply what it teaches. That's one of the reasons that I believe that the Bible is God's word and it has survived so long throughout history is its ability to affect and change the soul, ultimately bringing glory to God. The Bible is the greatest single source of our culture. It's the greatest single source for music, art, and architecture. And if we take the Bible out of culture, it destroys most of major music, artwork, and architecture of the past 2,000 years. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The only item on the planet that will last is the word of God. A famous philosopher from France, who was a brilliant atheist in the 1700s, named Voltaire. And he wrote 
several publications trying to, to deny and even put aside anyone that would believe in the Bible. And he once made a very bold statement where he said, 100 years from now, the Bible will be a forgotten book. That was in the 1700s. Today, not only has, have we not forgotten that book, but no one remembers that quote. <laughs> for, for nearly 100 years after his death, his homestead was used as the book depository for the French Bible Society. They sold Bibles out of... It's now a museum and people don't even remember Voltaire, the atheist. But they have not forgotten the Bible. It's under attack and so we need to remember it, we need to apply it, we need to know the power that it has to transform and change lives. I could list many more reasons why this topic is needed, but if you get the point, is that it's so important for us to recognize and understand the value of God's Word as it relates to counseling others and counseling ourselves biblically. Let's look at the definition, and, and let me just at the outset give you kind of my goal. Here's what I'd like to, uh, to get through tonight as we look at our outline. Um, I keep it simple, okay? So as, as we talk tonight, I'd like to define what biblical counseling is for you, tell you some of the things that I believe biblical counseling does for us, um, share with you three things that make counseling biblical. We're going to have to introduce to you an illustration of a, of a pyramid to help us focus our minds, wrap our minds around what it looks like to think and process things biblically. And then at the end of our time, I just want to look at some doctrines of our faith. Uh, how do we apply what we know about God's word every day. So as I would think about the doctrine of who God is, what does that mean tomorrow as I encounter situations? And so really my goal, my goal tonight in our, in our closing moments together is to be very practical. To help you to leave this place to one, know what it means when we talk about biblical counseling and why it's important. But number two, to know how can I leave this place and come back tomorrow ready to learn all that God would have for me because of the foundation that has been laid tonight, thinking about what it means to counsel this place. So that's where we're going to go. Let's see if we can get there. Kent defined biblical counseling when he, when he taught, and it could be defined in many ways. He put in his notes one of, one of the ways it could be defined. Biblical counseling is a ministry of the Holy Spirit through gifted believers within the local church. Fulfilling the great commission by the great commandment, speaking the truth in love. It's great to speak the truth in love. For simplicity, let me define it for you this way. Biblical counseling is simply soul care. It is the practice of training believers toward greater Christ-likeness <laughs> through the careful use of the scriptures for the glory of God. See, ultimately, we are all, again, called to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, to come alongside those who are hurting, and to bring them toward the greater Christ-likeness, ultimately bringing glory to God. Kent shared that that is the ultimate goal, to become more like Christ. So if you think about a definition of biblical counseling, that's where it should always land. Become more like Christ for the glory of God. So what does biblical counseling do? Let's, let's look at six things that biblical counseling does. And again, this is, this is set in the face of anything that is different than this. 
So this is really defining and clarifying what it means to counsel, to think, and to process biblically. What did this do? Let's look at 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, as we look at the first thing that it does. If you know the passage of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's giving him encouraging words as his young pastor. And as he gets to chapter 3, he gives him some words of instruction, some words of encouragement. He says this in verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So the first thing I believe that biblical counseling does is it draws us to Christ. It draws us to Christ. If you look at Paul as he's encouraging young Pastor Timothy, and spent a lot of time with him, invested many hours of probably counseling and shepherding him, visiting with him. You look at chapters 1 and 2, talking a lot about theology, setting the foundation in, in Timothy's ministry. And so as he gets to these verses, talking about encouraging to me to remember the things that you learned from when you were young, acquainted with the sacred writings, which are what? Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. The book counseling is always going to draw someone to Christ. So if you think about any circumstance we find ourselves in, even evangelizing, even counseling ourselves to think and process rightly, it should always draw us to a right understanding of Christ, which leads to salvation, which brings about wisdom and faith in his promises. Paul's point was, never forget the centrality of the gospel. That's where it begins as we think about a right understanding of what it means to counsel biblically. As I think about counsel that, that draws to Christ, I'm reminded of a story of, of my, my young life. I'm a young man, actually, but when I was a little younger than now, I, uh, I lived in Chicago when I was in, from birth until about went away to college, and um, my mom worked at a, at a mission, Pacific Garden Mission, a kind of a radio program worldwide called a Shackle, and she, um, she was the assistant director of the women's division there, and so there were many evenings when I, if I wanted to hang out with my mom, she worked oftentimes in the evening, I would go and have lunch with her, and there were many times on Thursday evenings where we would go to the, the dinner in the, in the dining hall with all of the the transients that had come through for the day were there for the meal and at the stage of the evening service, you know how that works. And so every Thursday evening was what they called a praise and testimony. So they'd all pile into the, into the auditorium space and they'd sing songs out of tune loudly and they uh, would share testimonies of what God's done in their life and woke up this morning and all those praises. And somebody would preach a fire Helen Brimstone message, and then they'd have someone pray, and people would come forward, and, and that, so that happened very, very regularly on Thursdays, and I remember very clearly, one, one time I was there, I believe I was probably 13, maybe 14 years old, I was there with my mom, just attending the service, and for some reason, 
so many more men were coming forward this, this particular night. Um, and they, so many men were coming forward to talk about Christ, having heard the word that they, I got a, a tap on my shoulder from one of the workers there that had known I was the son of, of Ruth Chambers. And he said, hey, we're, we're a little short handed tonight. I wonder if you'd be able to come and, and talk with a couple of guys. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm looking for my Bible, you know, what am I going to say to these people, what, what, I want to hear some mom. So, uh, so I, I kind of, I kind of wandered back to this room, this, this door that leads to, you know, nowhere, and so this guy kind of walks with me, and, and we sit down together, and I said, so why did you come forward? And he said, well, he said, I've just, I've lived, I've lived a life of addictions, and, and I've lived for myself, and I, I've come to the end of myself where I realize I have nothing, and so I want to trust in Christ. I need you to, to tell me how to do that. And I was like, wow, this is, this is like just what, what I hear about, like when I go to youth group, or when I go to church, they talk about the Romans road. It was, it was almost like a softball, and I was just kind of throwing the softball. This guy was just telling me, tell me, what must I do to be saved, right? And so... So I was able to just see firsthand in that moment what it looked like as someone, again, and I'm using the, the, the example of my mom, just someone who, who counseled biblically every day, pointing people to Christ, drawing people to Christ, and as people were exposed to the reality of what it, what it means to think about biblical things, to think about what it means to be more like Christ in your everyday life, it leads you to salvation. It's the centrality of the gospel. That's the first thing that biblical counseling does. Secondly, secondly, biblical counseling helps to order our affections. To order our affections. If you have your Bible, look at Psalm 1 with me. As we think about focusing on the right things, ordering our affections, I committed to using a paper Bible tonight, to go old school, and wow, I am not as good as was when I read the Bible scrolls. Um, Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. To think about ordering our affections, to think of our own lives as how you come to Christ, things that you had had to give up, things that you had to put away as, as sinful practices, and instead place your, the order of your affection on the right things, that's what it means to think and respond biblically. The things that we love become crystal clear. As we think about the gospel, as we think about an unbeliever that comes to faith in Christ, it's very clear to see putting aside the things of our past. As, as Ken mentioned, getting rid of the Gentile thinking, right? Our living in a darkened state of mind, and as we come to Christ now, our eyes have been enlightened, and we see the glories of the gospel and live that way rightly. But the reality is, as we walk 
the road of following Christ, we allow other things to get in the way of that rightful order of affection. What does it say in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the council, who does not sit, who does not stand. It's, it's a daily, maybe even a momentary challenge for us to think biblically, to, to talk to yourself, to counsel yourself, to think and respond biblically according to what we know is true about God and His Word. That's what the book counseling does. It helps us to order our affections rightly. Number three, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. When you think about explaining our identity in Christ. We sang a song about this earlier tonight. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We are new creations in Christ. We no longer have to live under the penalty, the punishment of sin, not even allow it to influence our thinking again as we are drawn to Christ, as we are ordering our affections, as we realize our full identity in Christ. Oftentimes, I, as, I, as I meet with people and as I try to understand why people do the things they do, why they think the way they do, or, or where they place themselves in the reality of, of God's word. Oftentimes, the question that I will ask people to answer for me is, when God looks at you, what does he see? When God looks at you, what does he see? And if you, if you think about that question in light of the circumstances around you, in light of what you value, what you place priorities on, it would be very interesting to hear how you would answer that, but even how others who are desiring to follow Christ answer that. The answer should be, I'm a child of the king. When God looks at you, what does he see? He sees a child of the king who is a new creation, right? One who is redeemed, one who has been justified by his grace through faith in his son. Forgiven through the blood of the lamb, redeemed by the power of God, adopted into the family of the eternal father. This can go on and on. This is why... Trials and situations that come into our life seem less significant when we recognize rightly our identity in Christ. If we allow the trials, the challenges that come into our lives, the circumstances, the hardships that come into our lives, and they will, and maybe they are right now, if we allow those things to just hold us down, to, be, to begin to become our identity, that as we answer that question, when God looks at you, what does he see? We begin to answer wrongly and say, I'm broken. And say, I'm unfor unforgiven. What Matthew West has a song, Hello, my name is Regret. And he goes on to list all these categories, right? What is he? We've never seen on Sunday morning. But, but he says, the chorus, right? Hello, my name is child of the one true king. That's who you are in Christ. As we think physically, as we process life around us according to God's word that is true, 
that we begin to recognize who we are in Christ. Number four. Number four, it reveals the motivations of our heart. Biblical counseling reveals the motivations of our heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. You want to honor Christ with your life. You want to be able to counsel others biblically to think rightly to bring glory to God, to help people become more Christ-like in their walk. You need to check your heart. Look, look at what's going on inside to know how you're really what you're desiring, what you're wanting in life. Do not focus on motivations. Or pardon me, discussion or counseling that does not focus on the motivation of our heart leaves us thinking about ourselves as victims. We began to allow the circumstances to overcome us. I am who I am because of what other people have done to me. Or I am where because of forces that physically are affecting me or outside of my control. I am where I am because of the way I'm being treated today. So we, we excuse away the ways that God is able to use us, the way that God is able to speak to us through his word we know is true. God's word drives us to consider more personal explanations of the choices that we make. God's word challenges us to face the hard reality that we are active worshipers. And continually, it reveals the identity of our functioning God. How do we do that? By the way that we think, the way that we speak, the things that we love. Here's some verses that help us to think about that, that emphasis of the centrality of our hearts. I just shared Proverbs 4, 23. Psalm 119, we can turn there. It says, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Proverbs 4, 23 is already shared. Matthew 15, Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. This passage is your favorite verse. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. <laughs> yeah, out, of, out of the abundance of the heart and the mouth, speaks. Understanding what God's word says about the gospel, it prepares us to invite also the, the patterns of a heart, the thinkings of a heart, even the nuances of it. That's why, that's why Paul, one of the reasons I love Paul the Apostle, is he's very genuine and real. He's not trying to pretend he's some great authority on anything, but rather he recognizes the struggles that he faces. Think about what he writes in Romans 7 when he's talking about the challenges that exist. He, he wants to please God in his actions, but yet he's doing the things he doesn't want to do and, and he's desiring to do those right things. It's this internal battle that the motivations of his heart are being exposed as he's trying to think rightly and trying to process biblically and think about what God would have him to do to ultimately bring glory to the Father. 
What does the whole counseling do? It draws us to Christ. It helps us order our affections. It explains our identity in Christ. It reveals the motivations of our heart. Number five, it changes us into the image of Christ. It changes us into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, and 29. And this whole, this whole passage of Romans 8 is just outstanding if you think about how to think rightly, counsel biblically. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It changes us into the image of Christ. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus praying for, for the disciples. He said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Romans 8, it helps us magnify God's Son as we progressively change into His image. It's why in 2 Peter 1, Peter writes that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Even the psalmist said in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. People who understand rightly the power of God's words, the power to use it as we think and process and respond biblically, causes us, changes us to be more like Christ, the image of Christ. Number six, what does biblical counseling do? It encourages us to find our hope in eternity. It encourages us to find our hope in eternity. The reality is, for many trials in life, many circumstances that we come across, some of them may, may not go away. Or if they do go away, another one is on the horizon. See, in this fallen world and in, until the Lord returns, we are going to be faced regularly with hardship, with uncomfortability, inconvenience even pain and sorrow. So as I think of that, I look at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Give us encouragement. 1 Peter New Testament. Let's <laughs> <laughs> promise. It says, In this you rejoice, and now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So what does biblical counseling do? Ultimately, Ultimately, it brings us to a place where we have, we have eternal hope, eternal joy, knowing that any challenge, any trial, hardship, pain, sorrow that we face in this life, as a child of the, of the King, one day in this little while, 
we might suffer, but in eternity we will find joy as we are tested and found the result of praise, glory, and honor. It's marvelous news. So that's what the counseling does. That hopefully encourages your soul, and I get that right there, and it would be good. But I, what I'd like to do is take us to our next session here. Now that we've set the, set the groundwork here, let's talk a little bit about three things that make counseling livable. And I want this to be very practical for us. Help us to, to process the information I give to you. So let me just give you the three things that I've written that make counseling biblical. Counseling is biblical when, one, it recognizes the gospel, Christ, and the Bible as foundational. Number two, it recognizes God's word as sufficient. And number three, it recognizes that all believers are called to offer biblical counsel to others and grow in their abilities to minister the word more effectively. So what I'd like to do is just think of a few minutes and talk through each one of those things. So the first one is that it recognizes the gospel, Christ, and the Bible as foundational. And I, and I believe we, we did that in many ways. What I'd like to do is put this, uh, this pyramid up there that you may, there might be a page two that says the theological pyramid, right? See that? I could have put this fancy little triangle up there but I thought, ah, let's test your artistic abilities and see how good you do. What I'd like to do is give you this, this illustration or this uh, diagram to help us understand what it means as we think about counseling biblically, but also recognizing the Bible as foundational. So there's this kind of a six-tiered pyramid. Level one is kind of the base upon which everything else flows and grows out of it. And it is the Bible is our foundation. And it answers the question, is it true? How do, we, how do you know what you know? So as we think about, again, framing us all around thinking biblically, counseling biblically, helping others to follow Christ and, and respond biblically as well. We recognize first that the Bible is our foundation, and this, this is where we recognize that God's word is an inerrant, inspired, authoritative, the sufficient word of God, able to counsel us as we look to its truth. As it builds upon it, it goes into the next part of that, and that is hermeneutics. I know, some of you are like, oh, here we go, hermeneutics, one of those fancy pastor words. No, it really is, it's a word, I believe, for every, every believer who desires to know God's word. And if you're a believer that does not want to know God's word, then let's talk, because we need to know God's word. We need to be students of God's word. And it, and it begins, or I guess how you want to say progresses, as we learn how to rightly study God's word. That is what hermeneutics is. The looking at the historical context, the method of interpretation, grammar, it answers the question, what does the text say? So again, we know that throughout the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there's so many different cultural things that come into play and tenses and, and who is written to and all of those things. And so that, that takes us to point three, level three, which is the exegesis. How does how do the, does the syntax work and the structural relations of things? And again, it's not, it's not rocket science or you don't need a, a doctor of ministry degree to 
feel the, to think some of these things, but rather use it to study God's Word. There's so many resources today at our fingertips that help us to know what God's been meaning when they said this to that person, and, and how does that correlate to this here? And so just to begin to, again, desire to think rightly and not just come up with assumptions based on what one word says one place. So again, it's, it's learning how to study God's word as we lay that foundation. Level four is, is biblical theology. So again, as we're building upon that foundation, we begin to think about the propositional statements and, and doctrines. Uh, propositional statements are just things that are known to be true. So uh, for example, we, we read some in the Psalms where it says, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, that's a propositional statement. We, we recognize and we understand that to be a true statement. That general revelation declares, proclaims God's glory. The propositional statement. And it goes so far even as talking about doctrine. So we're read like Ephesians 1 where it begins to just lay out a doctrine of the, the Trinity, the Father, Spirit, Son. We just see how passages of scripture lay out for us a biblical theology answering the question what truths and doctrines are being taught those are the questions we ask we take it up farther stay with me is we, we, we look at systematic theology and that is where it unifies the fruit of biblical theology into a usable whole so it, it, it not only takes the, the one passage or verse you're looking at, or rather looks in a broader scheme and says, okay, if I'm learning about the doctrine of who God is, what else does God's word say about who God is? And so we begin to think about what does the whole Bible say about this? We're becoming more and more informed, more and more knowledgeable as we seek to grow and understand in our knowledge and ability to apply God's word. It's so crucial that we desire to think and counsel biblically to know and understand God's word as a whole. And then level six, out of this, at the very top comes our practical theology. How a person changes and grows. How does it apply to life? What does it mean tomorrow when I have to go back to work? What does it mean when I have to go home and, and deal with my <laughs> minister to my wife and children? Right? How does that play out? I'd like to just give you a couple thoughts on that as, as we look at this. I want to leave this grid right here and just give you a couple side tips on it. Oftentimes, as, as this pyramid is practiced, so we desire to, to practice biblical counseling and to use a theological pyramid, if you will, of, of how we would shape or frame our process of how we go through. Many times, people will go right to level six. Here's what you need to do. You want to know how I make that better? You do this. I read this somewhere. Hey, somebody told me this over here. We go to the, the practical theology and we, we forget about one to five. The, the, the foundation, right? The, the wide piece at the bottom that kind of lays for us the groundwork of thinking and responding biblically. See, so if we have level six without one to five, that's not really biblical counseling. It's not just a label that we slap on something and say, oh, hey, I'm giving some biblical counsel. No, it, it is rooted and grounded in God's word and errant and authoritative in 
a right understanding of the principles of studying God's word, in a right understanding of exegeting passages and knowing what Paul meant when he wrote these things and what other men meant in the Old Testament and framing our theology around major doctrines and unifying it into our systematic theology overall with all of God's words that, and then bringing us to that place of how we apply it. To do it the, the out-of-order way causes us to insert man-centered or oftentimes unbiblical counsel. Counsel that is not grounded in solid systematic theology cannot accurately offer counsel or advice on how to understand the human heart. Nor can it inform us on how to change, why to change, or even to define the goal of change. That's the first danger to be aware of. The second danger to be aware of is to apply, keeping on that, looking at that pyramid again, is to, to look at levels one to five without knowing how to apply level six. It becomes incomplete and ineffective. We come to that place where we, we have this knowledge where we, we just want to spend so much time talking about the, the hypotheticals and the theoreticals and the philosophicals and all the other oracles that we, we don't apply it to, to real-life situations that we all encounter. We, we almost place this partition or compartmentalize, well, here's my, here's my Sunday school class in my small group and my Bible study group where we really look at God's Word. But then the other days or the other times, well, that, that's real life, and so they're, they're not combined, but, but they are. Like they, they inform one another to bring us to a place of applying it tomorrow. The task of biblical counselors and believers is to minister the word of God in the goal of heart change rather than simply changing behavior. In order for that to happen, it has to include levels one, two, three, four, five, and six. A couple of tips here. So number one, counseling is biblical when it recognizes the gospel, Christ, and the Bible as foundation. Number two, Three things that make counseling biblical is that, number two, it recognizes God's word as sufficient. Kent talked a lot about, a little bit about sufficiency tonight, and I believe we're going to talk a little bit more tomorrow, so I won't go into a lot of detail. What I'd like to do is just share a few passages of scripture with you that I believe share with us very clearly that God's word is sufficient. We talk about sufficient, what that means, um, it means complete. It means adequate. It means enough. So as I, as I think about synonyms of that word, that word, I, I think, again, my world, worship after right, so I think, oh, okay, what are songs that I know of? There's not that many that have the word sufficient in them. So, but I think of the song, Christ is enough, right? He's Christ is my reward, all of my devotion. There's nothing in this world that can ever satisfy through every trial, my soul will sing. No turning back, I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Christ is sufficient. God's word is all that I need. Look at what it says in 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
He's given us all that we need. His word is sufficient. If you apply it and use it, it brings us to be more like the image of his son, Jesus Christ, which is the goal. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 as well. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Perhaps you've heard this verse summarized this way. As you think about teaching, reproof, correction and training, teaching tells us, tells us what's right. Reproof tells us what's wrong. Correction tells us how to get right, and training for righteousness tells us how to stay right. So as we think of God's word, applying it, it it's, a, it's a manual, it's a, a guidebook to help us to become more like Christ, that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what it means to think biblically. That's what it means to counsel biblically. And that's what... That means that it's sufficient. Jesus practiced sufficiency as well. Listen to these words that he wrote. John 12, 49 says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. John 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And John 15, 7 and 8, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. Jesus spoke on no authority of his own, even though he had it all. He recognized God's word as sufficient, God's word as authoritative, the foundation upon which we could base our biblical counsel ourselves and to others. And lastly, Paul, he proclaimed that everything was sufficient as well. In Acts 20, he says, you yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. No matter where it was that Paul went, whether it was from at the synagogue where he was proclaiming to Pharisees and others or in homes of, of believers, he was proclaiming boldly the sufficiency God's word. No, it's not a sin to give opinions, but if they contradict what God's word says, it, it is. Think about how to counsel biblically others. Those are the first two. Number three, counseling is biblical when number three, it recognizes that all believers are called to offer biblical counsel to others and grow in their abilities to minister the word more effectively. Let me just share with you two realities of this truth. The first reality is that everyone, everyone needs biblical counsel. I need biblical counseling. Anybody walking around right now or sitting around or at home driving, everyone needs biblical counseling. It's not, it's not a, a type of discipling or training or event that takes place in crisis only. God calls us to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ and to bear the burden to speak into their lives. Look what Hebrews 3 says. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, 
why that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me give you a bad analogy. So, I have a daughter, Emma. She's in seventh grade. She's not here tonight, so don't tell her I'm telling you this. But um, I, I try to help her with her math most days. And uh, it's been a long time since, since I did math, especially seventh grade math. Like, if it's addition and stuff, I'm not that bad. But, but she's, <laughs> she's getting into some of these equations that are like multi step and you have to understand what the words mean before you know how to explain them. And so um, I don't know how to do these things. My, my mind doesn't recall the process. Why is that? Well, because I don't really have to plot a graph line in my office on Tuesdays or Wednesday nights. Like, it's just not part of my practices. And so, so the analogy is, if we are not in God's book, daily, rarely, using this as our source, as we counsel others, our hearts may be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sin. How do we, how does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to his word, right? And so every day, as long as it's called today, we need to be exhorting one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another. Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Man, I encourage you to know that one, we all need biblical counseling, but two, we also need to be counseling others. A second reality is that God provides the church with believers who are uniquely gifted. This is not your uh, pasco, you know, you don't, you don't have to, this doesn't mean, oh, that's not me, I'm not the uniquely gifted one, I don't have to counsel. That's not what I meant. What I mean is, is that all believers are called to counsel, but by God's grace, he has gifted the church, provided the church with some who are uniquely gifted to counsel. Galatians 6, as we already talked about, believers who are spiritual should be able to address the majority of the soul care needs of the local church. But by God's grace, some are uniquely gifted, like pastors, teachers, help with some more difficult issues. But the body of Christ is called and enabled to meet all the non-physical counseling needs of the church. How marvelous is it to be a part of a community of faith a fellowship, and I don't even mean if you have the name Bethany in your name, but I just mean as, as brothers and sisters of Christ who unite around the gospel in this community, in this region area, to know that there are other like-minded local churches committed to coming alongside those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who are in, in need of intense biblical counsel, and God is uniquely gifted individuals to do that. What a blessing it is. And not only is God provided the truth for that, but God is also providing a way for us to raise up others. The fact that some of you are here is demonstrating, showing that perhaps God has uniquely gifted you. Don't shy away from that or, or neglect that gift that God might be calling you to do in the local church, in this local church, in your own local church. God calls us all so those are two realities. And with our time remaining, I have about 15 minutes. I'd like to just make this very practical. 
Okay, and, I, and I might go a little quickly here, but I just want to give you a glimpse of what I mean when I talk about um, applying the doctrine of God's word to my faith and practice. See, it, it's easy to kind of hear some of the major, major things and say, oh yeah, God's word is true, um, Christ died for my sins, we know the gospel, things like that. But as I think about understanding that, that pyramid and that, those aspects of biblical theology and systematic theology, what, what does that mean? Like, how, do, how does that play out in my everyday conversations? And so what I'd like to do, as we have time, kind of fly over the, the nine major doctrines. I think in your notes you might just have kind of bullet points there, theology proper. Is that, is that in your notes there? Perfect. So I just need to define those and then give you a, an example of how, how that looks as, as, again, thinking about this theology, how it shapes the way we view counseling others. So for example, theology proper, this is simply the doctrine of God, what we know about God as we inform ourselves, train ourselves, teach ourselves biblically about God, how does it shape how we live it out in our conversations, in our processing, in our thinking biblically? So, I just put down one, and you can think of others on your own, but one, what do we know about God? He is the creator, right? He created all things in heaven and earth, man, everything that's in it. And so therefore, based upon that reality and knowledge of, of who God is, counseling, therefore, must be God-centered, right? If I, if I base it somewhere else, then I've kind of taken a right understanding of who God is out of that equation. Does that make sense? So, and again, this is just one example. Another one is God is holy. We recognize, we can look all over scripture and find places that, that God, not only is God holy, but he, he calls others to be holy. And so as I, as I again, begin to understand that reality of, of a theology that shapes my faith or gives me a better glimpse into what I, what I believe and why I believe it, then it helps me to counsel others and say, you know, I've, I've been noticing, I'm talking for a moment because over here, I've been noticing that I'm just noticing some things in your life that as I, as I read God's word and see that, that God is holy and that like, like you're not, and so in order for you to maybe get holy, we need to think about well, what does that look like? And, and so again, it kind of leads us down that road to say, okay, if I recognize that God is not holy, so then what other systematic theology does it approach? And so it leads us to our next one, which is over here next one. Epistemology, the doctrine of knowledge. God defines reality, and only he sees the whole picture. Is this ever, would this ever be helpful to know as we're going through life and wondering, what in the world is God up to? Why is this happening to me? How can I, how am I going to get to this situation? You know what? God is omniscient. God knows all things, and, and nothing happens outside of his control and his plan and his his, without, without him knowing. Proverbs 1.7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A right understanding of who God is begins to give us a glimpse of wisdom, of thinking rightly, of applying it to our lives. Number three, bibliology. It's, it's, that's simply the doctrine of God's word, the doctrine of scripture. We've talked a lot about what that looks like 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, 2 Peter 1, 3. What does that mean practically? It means that Scripture has authority. It means that the Bible speaks of every area of my life. I'm 
I'm struggling here. I'm struggling there. I'm struggling to know what to do here. Well, you know what? God's word has authority. God's word can show me by principle and by direct word how to live righteously, how to bring glory and magnify God in my life. Number four, anthropology, the doctrine of man. Again, this comes as a natural, as we think about the doctrine of God, that God is holy. Boy, the next conversation is the doctrine of man. You know, the reality is man is, is God's creation, right? He's not an animal that has no accountability, but rather he was created with body, soul, and spirit and, and is accountable. He's not a victim of his environment. He is dependent on God. He is totally depraved, unable to be holy. And it begins to walk us down that road of the gospel, leading us to Christ. On his own Romans, we would say that man cannot do good. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? To also know that in Genesis 6, the thing went right before Noah. The world was so evil, living life for themselves, depraved, doing what was right in their own eyes all the time. Man was created to glorify God, but because of sin, he seeks to glorify himself. As we understand the, the simplicity of, of systematic theology, of these big words that are so practical, they help us to counsel biblically, to share Christ with others, and help them to think biblically as well. Number five, your favorite word. Homariology or homarchiology or however you like to say it. The doctrine of sin. It's a reality that we all live with. In fact, I hate to say this to you, but, but you were born a sinner. Romans 3 tells us that all people are sinners born with a bent toward unrighteousness. And because of that, we have been alienated from God. And so what does that mean? Well, again, as we think about counseling others, someone who doesn't believe that this is true, that seeks fulfillment from the world's system, as First John would say, they will not see Christ as the only solution to their problems. They will try to provide substitutes that promise fulfillment, but guess what? They'll fall short. And so as, as we make this practical in our daily lives and the people that we come across, every day we encounter people that put things in place of God, even things that perhaps promise fulfillment, and they fall short leaving people empty, leaving people searching, leaving even people in a worse place than they were when they were searching, depressed, leading to other things that, like life's of addiction, suicide, all of these things that come from a sinful, selfish heart, a depraved person. We have the ability to, to counsel biblically, to point people to Christ. The doctrine of salvation, number six, God sent Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. His perfect life, Jesus' life of obedience, and his death provides the basis for a believer's restoration to God. You see how these are so interwoven beautifully. God's wrath was satisfied in his son, Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus' righteousness and atonement for sin was placed upon us through our faith in him. The redemption comes from the bondage of sin. We've been reconciled to God, restored as his child. Christology, the doctrine of Christ. He is our example. 
He died as a substitute for people. Christ is Lord, part of the Trinity. Nothing is needed apart from his help. There's no problem that he can't solve. Nothing is hopeless as we think rightly about Christ. Listen to these words from Hebrews 4 as it describes the doctrine of Christ. Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, as we understand the doctrine of Christ and we recognize all he's done for us, it's so natural to counsel biblically using that doctrine, allowing that doctrine to shape our thinking, our processing, even our response and counsel as we think biblically. I'm going to skip pneumatology and look it up on your own. Number nine, the doctrine of the church. Homework. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. And in all things, he might have the preeminence. He is the head of the body, the church. What does that mean? The church has authority. It is the pillar of support of the truth, his word tells us, 1 Timothy 3.15. Also, the church exists to evangelize lost, Titus 2 tells us, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It's practical. It affects and changes how we would counsel others. The body of Christ is the place of worship and sanctification. Believers need other believers to grow. We come alongside one another encouraging one another, holding each other up. The church exists to provide a context of loving fellowship with one another for the purpose of mutual edification, ultimately to bring glory to God. So what does all this mean? I started talking really fast at the end, trying to get everything in. Hopefully you caught it. What does this mean? It means, here's what it means, it means to me, means that we have been given all that we need for life. It means that you have been given all that we need for godliness. And it means also that we have been given all that we need to share with others, to counsel others in a way that would bring them to Christ, draw them to Christ, and to think and respond to the place. I close, you read, you read this to you from Hebrews 10, our time is gone. As we think about what makes biblical counseling biblical and the ultimate goal, we're reminded of this passage in Hebrews 10, verse 19, talking about the assurance of our faith. The writer says these words in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, or pardon me, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, 
and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us hold fast our confession of faith without wavering hope. The joy it is to, to know the Lord, to know and have his word in our hands that we could digest and process and grow with as we seek to counsel biblically ourselves and the world around us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time tonight and so thankful for each one that is here that has stayed late with us as we desire to follow you and desire to, to glorify you in our lives and in our conversations and in our dealings with people. Lord, I pray that as we leave tonight, as even as we go to sleep, Lord, just that you would be on the forefront of our minds as we think about your word, as we think about what you have called us to, how you would use us, how you would equip us to do ministry in the local church. Lord, give us a safe trip home tonight and just pray that you bring us back again in the morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.